Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, you may be, well be listening to the longer version, uh, but you might not. You might not have time. You might be listening to the shorter version, which is available to everyone. If you're everyone, which is in the huge Venn diagram, which uh, includes Patreon supporters, but is everyone else as well, if you can support us via Patreon, that would be great. There's loads of other stuff that we do. Uh, we've got an excellent uh, episode of Uncanny Hour, all about Exorcist 3 with Mark Kermode, Mark Gatiss, and various other Marks whose names are often mispronounced when they're introduced on chat shows. Uh, and we've also got our new series of uh, Tips for Existence and our latest guest, which will be out, well, depending when you're listening to this, but if you listen to this on the day that this goes out, uh, next week's guest is Neil Gaiman. Um, and today's guest on Book Shambles is, I'm pleased to say, we've had this our, our second Booker Prize winner of, of the last year. We're and just collecting is... them, aren't we? Yeah, slowly. It took us a while. The Booker Prize winners weren't always certain, were they, for low life like us? Um, but it's such a great book, and I'm really glad that he could join us because uh, it's Douglas Stewart, who's the author of Shuggy Bane. Uh, which, even if you, if you stop listening now, just stop listening so you can immediately go out and, and buy the book and go to your independent bookshop or order from an independent source or whatever, because it's such a great novel. And I should say it was a very apt time for us to speak to him because his book is out now on paperback. And that's good for me because I'm not a hardback woman. You know this about me, Robin. I'm not a hardback woman. I'm a paperback woman. It is, it's a, it is a, a weighty book in hardback. Yeah. And I like to be able to sort of bend a book round to my reading whims. You are a spinally destructive when it comes to books, aren't you? Yeah, I want to show them, you know. I'm the one with the, the power here. Yeah, yeah, I can crush you, inanimate <laughs> object. You crush my emotions, I crush you. You think you're full of ideas. You're not even <laughs> sentient. You're only paper. <laughs> anyway, here's Douglas Stewart. Fortunately, we didn't do this intro when he could hear us. He'd think that he'd probably not have done the interview, I imagine. Well, actually, the first thing I wanted to ask Douglas, because this is, I know everyone's always going to say this, it's the kind of dream thing, isn't it? You write your first novel, you get the booker, and then you think, do you know what, I might just do a Harper Lee and leave it at that. Um, And I I wondered, though, about, I remember talking to to Dave Keenan, who who wrote um, This Is Memorial Device, that was very Mm. successful, and and he told me, he said, um, he said he basically wrote three novels beforehand, which he chucked Mm -hmm. away. In fact, Mm -hmm. one of them, he not only, and he knew he wasn't going to, ever published them he just wanted to write a book to see how that worked one of them he even smashed the hard drive to make sure it could in no way exist <laughs> and i find it fascinating when someone writes a, a novel like yours which is so full so vivid so that how do you as a someone who is not you know your first novel how mm. did what was the start of it are are there all of these other novels that that lie behind that just never made it as far as a publisher or or is this the one that was always there waiting to come out shuggy was always the novel that was waiting to come out i think there's hundreds of drafts actually dozens of drafts i think was the journey that the book came on but it began really as a personal project uh for myself and i never had dreams of it being published or expectations that it would be And so when I began the book in 2008, I wouldn't even allow myself to imagine it was a book. It was just a collection of writing. 
sort of personal memories merged with fiction, sort of recollections of what it was like to grow up in Glasgow of the 1980s. And part of the reason why I never imagined it would be published was because I was, you know, I was feeling some inferiority things from my place in the British social class system and my upbringing on the east and south side of Glasgow. And because I was also very engaged in my fashion career at the time. And so I didn't necessarily have a need to share this other facet of my creativity with people. And so I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. Um, and actually, funnily enough, uh, before Shuggy was published, I've actually finished my second novel, uh, which will ultimately, I hope, be published. Um, uh, but, you know, for me, it wasn't about throwing out books or throwing out uh, some other work. It was really about revising drafts and going through it. And, and I love that process. I think part of that comes from, because you will know, I have a, a background in design and design is about iteration. It is about improving on a prototype and keeping going and, and sort of how can you keep moving something towards your idea of the perfect thing. And so I was really leaning on those skills and, and my background there and, and just loving going through all these drafts of Shuggy. Wow, that's so interesting. And I, but and also it's so funny because I, I'm the sort of person that's like, oh, this is the only thing I can do, done, you know? And it's so wonderful to think of you as like crafting it so meticulously for yourself over such mm. a period. But then how did you feel when now everyone can read it? Like, how was that as an experience for you to have it out there? Absolutely terrifying at first. And I wasn't sure I was going to uh, try and get Shuggy published, but at about the 10 year mark, it actually stops being my joy of creativity and becomes a little bit of a plug or a block where I couldn't fully move beyond these characters because I couldn't leave them alone. I kept going back and revising them or just spending time reading and, and being with them. And so about the 10 year mark, I had to publish it or I had to do something with it or else I was going to be unable to keep moving through my other work that I wanted to get to. And, you know, when you write a story that has so much trauma in it or so uh, looks at childhood quite honestly from, from an area of deprivation, then especially as a Scottish man who's told, you know, who's raised to never share his feelings or to talk about these sort of things, you know, we're never allowed to really think of ourselves as exceptionally, never exceptionally great or exceptionally hard done to. It's a very classic sort of West of Scotland working class mentality. And here was I about to sort of explain all of these things and sort of publish this book that really contained so many things that I'd been holding secret for so long, I think. And so that was terrifying, actually. Um, and it's been quite a journey. See, that, that what, what I got from a lot of the, the, the book was there are times when you really think there's a tragedy in hope, mm. which oh. is these characters, so many of the characters, that there's that little moment, perhaps when they were teenagers, very often, and they were the, you know, for, for that they get into the clubs, and they were, and then the rest of their life is is almost stuck to that moment of remembering when they were younger, when they imagined possibilities which they never were able to to uh, attain, and and that's what what I what I've, I've got lots of questions on that, but one of them is about <laughs> your kind of how how you feel that you got out from what is so many of the characters in this they're just trapped in these and, and and you kind of even sometimes when you see the younger characters you go oh they're going to be the person that we've just been reading about now who's on pills and who's you know an alcoholic mm -hmm. how do you see that you know your way of fulfilling all of those the, the potential and those dreams you're right and the character at the center of it agnes bain who is this very uh 
glamorous, defiant, proud uh, working class woman uh, has this potential at the beginning of the book that does seem like it's not going to be lived up to. And that sort of hastens her descent into her alcoholism. For me myself, I never had any desire to move away from Glasgow or to leave sort of to to leave the circumstances I was I was born in. Um, and in fact, everyone I love is still there. My family are still on the streets that I write about. And so Glasgow is still my spiritual home. But I was a young boy that grew up under the Thatcher government, and I saw all of the hard work and the faith that the men around me placed in learning trades and getting good work just be sort of unrewarded by the British government. You know, and even when they had work, they never seemed to be bringing in enough money to, <clears throat> excuse me, to sort of, you know, make it from a, we were always running out of money on a Wednesday and we still had to make it to Friday on the payday. And then of course, unemployment shoots up to 26% in the East End of Glasgow and it stays there for a long time uh, amongst the working class communities. And so in a way I had nowhere left to turn. I was lucky that I was just young enough to be able to see it as a kid without having been actually thrown into the meat grinder of it with nowhere else to turn. And so I tried to hitch my wagon to, to sort of education and, and to learning something. But my early days are so disrupted. You know, when you have a parent at home who is suffering with addiction, you have no peace, really. You're always concerned about what's happening at home. And, and so my education was really disrupted and I couldn't, I couldn't compete, I couldn't focus. And it's sad to say, because I would change it if I could, but when my mother died when I was 16, when she finally succumbed to her addiction, I suddenly had peace. Eventually, when I sort of come out of the grieving process, I have peace and I'm able to focus and, and think about my future. And by then, it's really the sort of the transformative power of educators and teachers. You know, I had four really powerful teachers at this school on the south side of Glasgow. We just saw a young boy who was struggling um, not only to figure out what his future is, but just to survive on the planet. You know, I'm living by myself. I'm trying to finish high school. I'm the first person in my family to finish high school. I'm trying, I'm working four nights a week, all day Saturday and Sunday, just to make money to pay rent to go to high school. And these four teachers intervene and they and they start to sort of show me a world beyond what I know. They, they, they turn me to actually towards textiles, which is interesting because at 16, 17, I didn't know what a textile was. What, what boy knows what a textile is? And they just saw a creative kid that needed to express his creativity, but also needed the, pragma, the pragmatic trade behind it, a very practical thing that you could manufacture in a, in a Scottish industry. And so I was sort of turned towards textiles and super grateful for that. But that's really what took me on my journey, you know, learn how to knit and knitting took me into fashion and fashion brought me to New York. Wow. See, that's so because because I should say I, I didn't mean the geographical escape, just in case anyone mm. thinks that was an anti Glasgow comment. We have our Glasgow correspondent, Josie, at the moment. I just who moved is, to yeah. Glasgow in November. <laughs> I, I should have disclosed earlier. I'm jealous. <laughs> but, but, I do love it. I do love it. But it's it's obviously it's different time, different circumstances. But I am. I, um, and I think as well about you saying it needing that co connection to a craft, to a trade and stuff, and actually how so much beautiful artistic talent is disregarded if it is linked, you know, like I'm thinking of like joinery and things that are yeah. incredible <laughs> sculpture, you know, in one way. And about how actually that's often people who are massively talented roots to doing something that reflects that. Um, uh, and there was some other, there was another point. Oh, and of course about like, not knowing that these things exist, you know, not mm -hmm. knowing that you could go into design and textiles, mm -hmm. only knowing the kind of 
world that you've got around you. And so you know, to have that intervention at the right time and just to open that door on what the world can be is just, gosh, it's vital. Absolutely vital. And, you know, teachers saw, not only was it an intervention, but they saw a future for me that I couldn't imagine for myself, never mind not knowing what textiles was. And actually, textiles is an incredibly proud Scottish industry. You know, we what do we make if not all these wonderful types of cloth between tartan and knitwear and, you know, wax cotton out of Dundee? Um, but I just couldn't see it and I couldn't imagine it. And that's the power of teachers, I think, is they have, you know, just intersecting with my life for two years, a year and a half. They have formed my entire life and I'm so grateful uh, to them for that and for believing in me. Uh, I think the other thing that's really important is sometimes, you know, kids don't have a lot of belief at home or, or have anyone that can really sharpen them towards that. And when a teacher believes in you, it, it really sows seeds inside yourself where you start to believe in yourself. And that can be the transformative action. Did you, how much has it changed? I mean, to, to, to stay with this story, and keep returning to these characters and as you said you know so much of, of them come from your own experience did you sometimes have days or did your husband sometimes read something and have a moment where he'd say i now understand this wow. and i understand this of you and that you how much has it changed your sense of 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 who you are and and who also all those people around you were and the battles they had yeah that's a brilliant question and it takes two sort of separate answers the first one is is i've been with my husband for 24 years now we met when i was 20 and i was still living actually in glasgow so he comes home with me twice a year uh, he sees my family he knows everybody he knows the streets i grew up on and yet no matter how i explained what it was like having a mother that was suffering with addiction or what it was like when we ran out of money and the things we had to do um he couldn't quite project himself into that headspace he's an american it's the other side of the world for him um, but suddenly when he read Shuggy Bain, you know, you really see the power of literature there because it forces you to create these images in your own head and it forces you to put your, your feet inside Shuggy's trainers or inside Agnes's high heels, however you want to look at it, and really walk for them. And that's the power of empathy that literature has. And so the book actually increased my husband's understanding of me a thousandfold, I think, because um, he just couldn't do it beforehand, no matter how much I would tell him or share. And then what I wanted to say about, you know, it took me 10 years to write the book because when you're a child that's growing up in those circumstances, you have no control. Uh, you know, if, you're, if your mother's suffering with addiction, you do what you can to help and to save her, but everything's sort of happening around you. Your agency is very limited, even if you take care of them and even, you know, and the societal things that are happening in the backdrop, what's happening with men and unemployment and families coming apart. But when you write fiction, you take control. You know, you really are forced to look at the situation. And a lot of what I spent the 10 years doing was deepening my own empathy. So I understood why people did these things to each other, or I knew what it felt like, you know, to see some sectarian violence or to grow up saying crappy things about Catholics or whatever it was. But I didn't necessarily know the reasons why people did that or the or the historical causes of why that was or, or why people lapsed into addiction. And so it forced me to sit with the memories of my own mother and, and sort of really think about what brought us to that point rather than just what her addiction felt like to me. And so for me, it was also an, like a lesson in empathy. Wow, so that's like a therapeutic and quite a transforming process to write it. Yeah, and that was the, I think when people ask me if the novel's cathartic, that's why it's cathartic, is because it forced me to sit with quite ugly things and and to consider them from, you know, the point of view of a, 
a single mother in 1980s Glasgow or to think about why the men were uh, as they were. And a lot of people say to me, oh, the men in the book are quite bad. And I actually think, actually, the men in the book weren't allowed to be very much. There was a very narrowness to their masculinity. And so I had to sit and reckon with that first, you know, um, before I could before I could write these characters. Yeah, to me, catharsis would be like lashing out. So then you feel in the moment better. And that's not to me what that what it is, you know? Yeah, no, it was about understanding for me, I think, and about trying to to have even sympathy for the characters and understand what brought them to that point. But, you know, Glasgow for me is my home and it's my emotional home. But as a young boy, as a young queer kid growing up in this very masculine world, I was never really allowed to feel like I belonged in a way. Um, you know, I was always never... I was just always outside of what was going on. And, and so writing Shuggy Bane was a way to bring my spirit home, I think, and to and to sort of bring myself home, honestly, as a as an immigrant, as someone who's lived in New York. And so the 10 years of writing, it was just about thinking about all the things that had happened. That's what I thought was great, is I think there is, there's no one in it, or that I can think of, who you would go, oh, that character's evil, you know, because that's mm. one of the things people like, don't they? They like to think that a, a character is good or evil, and it's as mm -hmm. simple as that, and therefore they, mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, even someone like, like Shug, the dad, there's, he's never, it's like, he does terrible things. Well, you can see all the pain is still on the <laughs> show. All, all of that, even though it, it's not as if you put it into words, but there's just those small descriptions and sometimes just pasting down his bald patch and those little moments where you just... It, I just thought you beautifully... The, the, the problems of being human when you've got so few options and how do you escape when there are so few escape routes and some of the escape routes are, are horrible places to go. And that's why mm -hmm. I thought that it, I think it's a very hard thing to create a sense of empathy for such a disparate group of characters, some of whom have moments of incredible cruelty. Yeah, and actually even the character of Agnes Bain, she's often in blurbs or by journalists reduced to an alcoholic mother. And I sort of chafe at that description because what I wanted to show in the book is long before she's an alcoholic or even before she's a mother, you know, she's a very complex woman. She's a, she's confident, she's gallus, she's damaged. She, you know, is a, a friend and a lover and a, a wife and also a foe to some people. And, you know, she has problems with her pride and her wants and the people around her see it as being too much. She's too much. She wants too much. She's exhausting through her wants. And in truth, it's the world around her that's not enough. It's not that mm. she wants too much. It's that the, the world won't give her what these very humble things that she wants. And she's all of those things before she's an alcoholic. And she's all of those things even when she is an alcoholic. And so I just tried to show the complexities of those characters. And even with Big Shug, you know, he does a lot of terrible things and terrible things to women. But first of all, he's allowed to, uh, which is true. And uh, he's sort of... He's, you know, no one really holds him to task or to account to that. And and part of that was part of the time, which is horrible to say. But I wanted just to put it on the page as clear-eyed as I could. Yeah, it's it's such a... Um, I mean, that that's what now, having spent 20 years or over 20 years looking... Because I, I, was, I was talking with a friend of mine who's, who's based in Australia and she was just talking about looking back at Britain at the moment. Um, you get such a different viewpoint because at the moment I think we are in some quite strange political times again and there are points when it feels... I would say bad. 
I yeah. wouldn't be really strange. I would say bad if I could. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but it's, it's what, what, what for some, I, I think because of various things, various TV shows and stuff like yeah. that, and It's a Sin, which was, was um, kind of about um, Section 28 and AIDS and things like that, is it brought back being a teenager in the 1980s and seeing all of these different, very regressive, uh, and then suddenly looking at the world as it is now and in the UK with the new policing bills and new ideas to kind of reduce people's rights at the same time as they've been told they're given sovereignty. And I just wondered about your viewpoint with an ocean yeah. between us of what it looks like from there to, 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 to look back at the UK. Well, first of all, America's also a mess. So uh, I'm never quite sure if I want to go to the kitchen fire or the living room fire or where I'm at. They're both on fire. But, you know, I wrote Shuggy Bain. I'm often asked about the politics of the book. And I actually, I wrote Shuggy Bain first and foremost as a love story. It's a story between a mother and a son and how they cling to each other, how these two very bright feminine souls cling to each other in quite masculine circumstances. And that was all I set out to do. You just can't write a book about 1980s Glasgow without it encompassing so many human issues and political issues and, and socioeconomic issues. And so by that fact, it becomes a very political book. But I didn't sit down to write a polemic or to write some kind of manifesto. It's a love story to me. You know, it's a story about loss and grief, but it's about love. I'm always surprised that it has intersected surprised, a little bit disappointed that it's intersected. The things that I thought were perhaps historical fiction issues, looking at Glasgow in the 1980s, the publication of the book has sort of shown to me that we're still living through all of these things. We actually haven't come that far as a nation. You know, there's an, an alarming amount of kids living in poverty. There are kids that are denied hot school dinners in the same way that Shuggy was in the book. You know, the violence against women is something we're talking about just now. Voices from the margins, how we're not hearing from people enough and we're trying to reclaim that every single day. And so when I look back at the UK, just sometimes through the lens of Shuggy and its publication, actually sometimes I'm just bloody disappointed that we haven't come further. Well, and also that, you know, problems have exacerbated in the past 10 years, like, you know, in terms of food banks rising, in terms of domestic yeah. violence shelter being taken away you know so many things i feel have been actively made worse for them i appreciate yeah. it's not really it's a bit of a tangent to talk about but yeah well i think one of the things about shuggy and it's certainly my own personal experience is when i grew up with nothing and i was poor in the 80s everybody around me was in the same boat mm. and so there was an incredible amount of solidarity in that when i think about what kids might be feeling now today and how they feel very overlooked by uh, the Westminster government. And, you know, school dinners is just the, the tip of the iceberg with that, really. Because it's not really just about saying, I want to care about your physical body and your well-being in that sense. It's about what do you mean? What Like, what do we think of you as a government? And that's a really uh, alarming thing. It's a, it's, it's a bad clue or a bad sign that we tell kids in that way. But also kids growing up in poverty today have have so much access to seeing other lives that I didn't have. So I had a sort of comfort in my ignorance as a kid because I only knew the four streets that I grew up upon and, and everyone was living quite similar lives, you know, even in terms of addiction. You know, what I tried to show through Shuggy Bain is it's not just the Bain family who are suffering. There are families all over these housing schemes that were going through very similar things. But I think now 
today kids must have a terrible time through social media and seeing people living either truly gilded lives or falsely gilded lives or seeming to be getting on and prospering and and yet their day-to-day is is really hard what's it been that because the book obviously has become hugely elevated by winning the the, the booker and and by mm-hmm. the um and i presume that's will have really broadened the audience as 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 well it will be people who might not necessarily have gone because you will get some people who are going to read it because it's won the booker they might not not normally the kind of book i read um so i'm i'm interested in and you must have had because it reminded me again again another thing actually strange enough that dave keenan said which was he was so pleased when someone came up to him at signing and said i never read books but i've just read yours (laughs) and and that's and that's what i love about you know Shuggy Bane has to me, I, I think there are people who who may well, as you said, there's kind of a, a certain amount, you know, a lack of representation sometimes of stories. Mm-hmm. And and this is a story which I think anyone can can really become engrossed by it and gripped by it. And it's beguiling and it's disturbing and it has a thing. So I'm just interested in the different kind of, you, you've talked sometimes about the disappointment with those who can, can only see the characters sometimes as a singular trait. But what have been the kind of variety of different reactions that have surprised you? Uh, it's varied so much. I think the greatest reaction, the greatest compliment is when, uh, you know, people in my hometown, people in Glasgow read the book and they feel very connected to the characters and the truth of them. And they say things to me like, I know a Eugene or I know a Jinty, or that is absolutely how Agnes and Shuggy are. And for me, that dimensionalizing of these fictional characters and becoming real is the greatest compliment I think I ever received from actual Glaswegians. But I think even at the beginning of Shuggy's publishing journey, when he was rejected by a ton of publishers, people were sort of narrowing the book down to what is it about? You know, where is it? What is it about? Who has written it? And what has been the most surprising thing about Shuggy's publishing journey is the love and the heart and the hope and the humor and the resiliency at the heart of it was something that publishers and sometimes even critics couldn't quantify until people read the book. Um, And because it is a book about Glasgow in 1980s and a family going through a hard time, but it's also a book about so many more human things. Mm -hmm. And that's the universality of it. Uh, It's astounding to me that people in Detroit and in Delhi can relate very profoundly to Agnes Bain. They They know a mother like Agnes or Shuggy's situation or just leaks or how, you know, men and women were in the world in the 80s. You know, I'm often asked, uh, by queer readers, oh, it must have been hard, you know, growing up gay in Glasgow in the 80s. And I say, was it great in Paris? You know, did you have a great time in Naples? And they're like, no, it was terrible. And I'm like, yeah, that's the universality of it. No young gay man in the 80s was having a great time in, in the community he probably grew up in, unless it was very, you know, upper middle class or very liberal or very cosmopolitan as a city. Um, and so it's been that. It's just been the the how universal Shuggy and Agnes's story has become has been the most surprising thing, both to me, I think, and to my publishers. But I think it comes from doing the painstaking empathetic work as well, you know, because you've invested so much in creating the characters, in having, you know, in having that feeling and having that investment. That's what people can, you know, people recognise the richness of it, don't they? They know that you've not cut any corners. (laughs) I hope so. I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to be somebody's tour guide and take them on a poverty safari or a a shame safari. 
And what I really wanted to do was to build this world so that it felt so real and tangible to the reader that they, if they wanted to know Agnes, they had to sit with Agnes and understand the, it's a weird thing to say, but understand what the carpet felt like, what the room smelled mm. like, you know, how hopeful and joyful she was, how funny the family are, all the, all the details, but I wanted it to be as immersive as possible. And it was just a, a skill I think I learned that I pulled also from my visual design background because I've always been creating worlds visually for people and really painting pictures that allow uh, you know people to come in and, and immerse themselves. And so I knew I wanted to do that with Shaggy Bain uh, because also some of the themes in the book were so complex to get my arms around, even in 450 pages. Addiction is a big, a big complex thorny issue as is poverty, as is misogyny and homophobia. And so instead of trying to draw neat conclusions with it or, or even bring a 2021 lens to it and explain these things through that, I simply wanted to show it. Just let me show it and, and how you respond to it is your responsibility as a reader. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. Did you ever worry or were there any times that you read a draft and you thought, I've made that character too close to someone who, if they read this, will be... Did you ever kind of get any sense of the possibility of collateral damage? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think part of the reason why it stayed private for 10 years was, was also managing fears around that. But at the end of the day, I felt like, um, well, first of all, I allowed my big sister to read it before I published it because I felt if anything sort of stood on her toes or hurt her feelings, then it wasn't worth doing. And, And I think, you know, I came to the conclusion that we felt so overlooked in the 80s and the 70s. My mother especially felt so overlooked. And it wasn't that she was voiceless because... These Glaswegian housewives, by God, they could roar. And my mother had a voice. It was a very powerful, loud voice. Uh, It was just that, you know, between the Thatcher government and everything else that was happening also in the UK, the fascination with the South, how everything centralizes away from this housing scheme in the East End of Glasgow, she just felt very overlooked. Also, frankly, because when women suffer with addiction, society can really turn away. They don't want to see it. We forgive men, we don't forgive women, or we judge them very harshly for it. And so I felt in a way Shuggy was about reclaiming some of that voice or or making people look. And, and that, on the balance of things, tipped me towards wanting to share it. And I feel like none of it is written as an act of revenge. As you say, it's written as an act of love. And I feel like that's, you know, that helps. It, you know, it's not like... I can imagine if this is too silly, but I can imagine if you're writing something that's like, and I'll tell you as well, <laughs> you know, then it's going to be a, a more... Yeah. Totally. And also my mother's been dead for 30 years. You know, the only person who, uh, to my knowledge, who still brings my mother's memory up is my sister and I, you know, my sister's kids never met her, you know, so we are also dealing with a profound sense of loss there. And so in a way, although Agnes Bain is a, is a fictional character, um, it, there are parts of my mother, parts of me and Shuggy, but not the entirety of me and Shuggy. I wish I was precocious and as wise and as, and as funny as Shuggy was, but actually I was just a very shook little boy, you know? I was just deeply traumatized and wide-eyed the whole time. And so 
you know, these are characters of fiction that help to memorialise real people. I was going to ask you just about when you, you first moved to America about were the certain books then because i think sometimes when you're going on what can feel like an adventure you also want to double up that adventure by going i'm going to read this book because this is kind of maybe the mm. adventure that i'm having as well were the were the certain things you were draw, drawn to or perhaps still are drawn to actually it was the reverse for me you know i was brought up on when i started to get into books at 16 and 17 they all felt like books of the other other to me uh meaning you know very sort of english classics or perhaps big american classic books and so in my early 20s, when I actually come to New York, I start to search backwards to, to discover Scottish literature, to discover working class voices, even queer voices. And that was a desire, I think, to find facets of myself on the page and of the people I love and, and who I identified with. And so, you know, in the end of the 90s, the early 2000s, and that's when I'm really devouring Irvin Welsh and James Kelman and Alan Warner and Agnes Owens. But then also turning to people like James Baldwin and Alan Hollinghurst uh, for for the sense of my queer self, um, and so it wasn't. I actually didn't set out to discover America. I set out to, you know, from that distance to look back and and find myself. But that makes sense as well because you're sort of bolstering yourself for being so far away. You're kind of giving yourself a bedrock, making yourself a bit more sturdy to it. Totally, and I hated New York for my first couple of years that I was here. You know, it wasn't a conscious decision for me to get to New York to get here. I was just very untethered. And I was fortunate to be offered a job in New York, which sounds like a dream, but because there was no real family anchor in Glasgow, I found myself here very unprepared. And so I was heavy homesick for Scotland and for Glasgow. And that went on for about two or three years. And so when I'm like reading, devouring all this Scottish literature, it was to also address, you know, some of that. But but as a kid growing up in 80s Glasgow, you know, we were never shown our own people on the page. You know, you got some Robert Louis Stevenson and there was certainly a lot of uh, Robert Burns, but you never got to read, you know, working class Glaswegian lives or, or any of these things. And I think that's an important way to tie children to the pleasure of reading, to make sure as well as the curriculum, you're always just showing them a sense of themselves so that they get a sense that they matter. But also that sense of you're allowed, like the idea, oh, I'm allowed to write about a tin of beans and not just <laughs> a horse in the past, you know. I'm allowed to write about life as it is and not how I imagine writers write. And, and what kind totally of books right. also oh, oh. what kind of books do you love now? What have you been reading recently that you've really enjoyed? Oh, there's been so many. Actually, I've been on this really great run of new fiction, which has been phenomenal. One of my favourite books actually was just shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize. It's by an Irish writer called Elaine Feeney, and it's called As You Were. And it's really a story about three uh, Irish women on a hospital ward in Galway, I think it is. And they're from very different generations in Irish history, but it's about these intimate moments that women share together and the secrets they keep from the world. There's some staggering secrets in this book, uh, especially the fact that the protagonist hasn't told her family and her children that she's dying. And yet here she is on this terminal ward. But it's about really women in Irish history and the secrets that they're forced to keep and that they keep to themselves. But it's one of those books, sometimes you read books where you feel, as a man, you're like, oh my God, this is a really intimate world I don't often get to see into. And that, for me, is the magic of this book. 
And then another book that was phenomenal is um, Jacob Guanzon's book. It's called Abundance. It was just published by Grey Wolf Press. I'm literally uh, writing notes as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Uh, but it's about a father and his son, and they're struggling to make it in the Midwest of America. And they are evicted and living in uh, their father's F-150 Ford truck. Uh, and it just takes you through their life, how they're sort of trying to get by. But it's so suffused with love and hope. And it's, this father just looks at his son and wants to give his son the best in the world. Meanwhile, he's obviously so worried about money and about their circumstances. Um, and the, the author does a very interesting thing where he um, entitles every chapter by the amount of dollars that are in the character's pocket. So you go through it as the reader and you have that very visceral fear or that sort of, you know, you see the money going down and where's the rest of it coming from. And it's such an engaging way to really bring you into the plight but it's a beautiful book brilliant thank you so much for joining mm. us today um the james when you mentioned james baldwin in fact there's two things you just said that just remind that bit of how much has actually changed and i know that various people have said the questions that james baldwin was answering 60 years ago are still the questions they're being asked and they're having to answer and he and was like, so impatient by the end as well he was yeah. like come the fuck on you know <laughs> but that's that thing about not telling uh, anyone that she was term Neil reminded me we had I don't know if you know a British comedian called Alan Davis who's mm. just written an um, autobiography about the, basically his his father abused him but mm. one of the most horrible things in the book is his mother when she was dying when he was six years old she wasn't told she was dying nor mm. were the children mm. and you know that bit where you go I that's one bit I think there might have been progress. I really hope that could never happen now. Because that is... Uh... Yeah, how, how horrifying for the family. Um, it's actually funny, I'm writing on the next book that I'm working on just now, I'm, I'm still writing about secrets and about the, pe the things that people will tell others. And also when something uh, hurtful or shameful happens to a character, what are they allowed to share... Um, with the world and and in many ways some of the issues in shuggy some of the traumatic things that happen you'll see that there's no place for that trauma to go it's not like when something terrible happens to agnes the next chapter she doesn't go see a therapist or tell the people in her community about it or share it and i often think about the blanket of silence that fell over all of us in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and how we're still sort of working through a lot of that trauma as adults now um, when we just, it was, you know, it's a very British thing. It's such a strange British thing where we just didn't have anyone to tell almost, or we were encouraged to keep it to ourselves. Um, it's, it's very strange. I feel like that was like, when I think about my grandparents in particular, people who went through the second world war, you know, this inc like incredibly traumatizing period of time. And then we're like, well, we don't talk about the war. Like, what? <laughs> this is, you've got to talk about this. This is going to eat you up. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that was almost like became the national spirit to do that. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's totally true. I had a, a really fascinating conversation with Andrew Hagen the other day about masculinity and Scottish masculinity. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking, you know, Deborah Orr's actually, Deborah Orr's biography, Motherwell, mm -hmm. uh, has a really vivid, beautiful scene about her father working in Ravens Craig Steel yards. And, you know, a girder swings through the air and almost cleaves this young man in two. And of course, you would be terrified. We would all be absolutely terrified. But her father was not allowed by society to say he was scared. 
And these were terrifying jobs for men to do, to go down into a coal mine, to work in a steel mill. And yet they couldn't admit their vulnerability. They couldn't say, I don't want to do that. That scares me. Mm. You know, what a, what a bedrock for society that is if we don't allow men to admit their vulnerability. You know, what horrible fruits that must get all of us. Um, and so it's just fascinating, especially with men, I think, the things that they're not allowed to express. It's so fucked, isn't it? Because you just see so many of those people who keep it all in and therefore yeah. then, as you said, those horrible fruits. And mm -hmm. it is, you know, so many different forms of abuse, so many different... It, it's like, you know, the number of people that I've met or know or read books about where you just go, oh, people who were too ashamed even to talk about loving their own children. You know, mm -hmm. there's all of these things that can be expressed, violence and anger and shame. Mm -hmm. is so easily you know it, of other people you've let me down you've done this and all of those things that like you know people i know who it was only when their dad died that they found that he actually kept a scrapbook of their you know of, of all those things that were kept secret why do you and and as you said yeah the horrible fruits it's horrible just, fruits <sighs> It's uh, just the importance of communication and, and uh, allowing people to express themselves, their tenderer feelings, their vulnerability, but also their, their creativity. You know, mm -hmm. Shuggy and Agnes in the book go through, <laughs> I'm often asked about the cliche that is, you know, solidarity within, within working class communities. And, you know, oftentimes there is enormous solidarity there. But sometimes it can be united against you. You know, when, when you're a character like Agnes Bain, who can't fit in because she's a single mother, she has this vanity and glamour and pride that irks the other woman into wanting to pick at her and bring her down to their level or, or to understand why she should think this inflated way against her, uh, about herself. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really that. It's about not being able to be your full creative uh, glorious self that we have to allow people to be um, because I think it will just make society better and we certainly know the hurt that happens to young men today you know the, the alarming suicide rates amongst young men and I feel like so much would be helped if we allow men to express their true selves and and to say when they're hurt or when they're sad or when they're scared or or when they feel confused or vulnerable um thanks so much for joining Jeff, us i hope that was all right time. for your morning i realized we might be in the first conversation of the day so it might be very tangential <laughs> and higgledy yeah. piggledy. no thank well, you so much well thank you so much for having me and uh and welcome to glasgow josie We're oh so thank to you. Have you yeah it was funny it's so funny because i'm somebody who idealizes the city and has done for so long and that isn't to be oblivious to like any difficult that isn't to sort of pretend that it's a perfect place but i thought it was funny to sort of have me interview you and be like oh, i just got him oh, i love it you know it's so <laughs> ridiculous but um i i do you know i everything you've been wanting like, to be there for over a decade I, though, yeah because you? i the whole uh, but the way well, you, you made a movie and, and people yeah i i love it as a city because i do think it is like a city with a beautiful heart and like an incredible mm -hmm. spirit and like so like it's just yeah i love it but i am a big suck up to the city of glasgow and i'm aware that it's a bit much <laughs> but i can't help yeah. myself haven't got over it yet you're, you're a glass hag aren't you i think that's what you know yeah. we'll um, forgive you for it we'll forgive you but yeah i mean it's energy it's compassion's unrivaled I think. yeah Oh, truly, but also just the history in the city is so fucking cool, you know? The history of ordinary people in the city. Totally. Just the best. But thank you yeah. so much for sharing, like, with us and oh, chatting. Beautiful. Thank you for having me. Look after yourselves. 
Thanks very much for listening. It's producer Trent here at the end of the episode this week. What an exciting novelty for everyone. And yes, as Robin mentioned off the top, the Booker Prize winning Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart is out in paperback now. So if you missed it in hardback, now is the time to pick up a copy. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe and get extended episodes each and every week and support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network and you get tips for existence and uncanny hour and all that other stuff as well. Otherwise, this version will be free for everyone always and forever. But if you could go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show five stars, that helps us out as well. Back next week with another new episode. We'll have two guests on the next episode, which will be two standalone interviews. Robin spoke to A.L. Kennedy and Josie spoke with Tom Wyman about each of their new books. That'll be out next Thursday. Until then, take care, stay safe, and see you soon. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.